Well, thank, thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, everybody, for your welcome. It's lovely for me and my wife, Miriam, to be back here, where we spent 10 very memorable years from 1978 to 1988. The church looked a bit different then, but it's still the same St. Paul's. And thank you to all of you for coming, and especially some of you who have come back for a second go, having attended this course in Stratford-on-Avon last year. I'm tempted to say you must be mad, but I'm really glad to have you back again. And thank you to St. Paul's for their hospitality and generosity. And thank you to those who've produced this lovely workbook. Those of you who were at the Stratford course last year will see the improvement at once from the rather scrappy bits of paper uh, that we used a year ago. And thanks to Miriam, my wife, for doing all the typing and organizing all this for us. You'll see in the workbook that there is some space to write your own notes or to doodle or do a picture of me if you wish while we go through. I'm not going to check up on you. You'll also see that there are parts where we can fill in the blanks, but please don't feel you've got to do this. This is not primary school, and if you don't want to do that, please don't. But I found it quite a useful way of, as it were, sealing in what we've said earlier in the talk, and is perhaps a useful aid memoir or recapitulation. So we'll, we'll do that unless I get roars of protest from you that you don't want to do it. So try to imagine this, will you? You are a Christian family living somewhere in the eastern part of the Roman Empire towards the end of the first century AD. The previous Sunday, the last time you'd met with your fellow Christians, numbers were lower than ever. There were several people missing, lifted, so it was said, by the imperial police in the middle of the night. Others in the fellowship, friends, relatives, had disappeared weeks earlier, and they had not returned. Still, others of your Christian community, just as sadly, had vanished, not because they'd been arrested, but because they had abandoned their Christian faith and commitment. They were not prepared, they didn't feel they could pay the price of following Jesus Christ. So for different reasons then, fear, pressure, heartache, tension, stalked the streets. And perhaps your near breaking point, Lord Jesus Christ, you cry, I don't think I can continue to be one of your disciples much longer. You desperately need encouragement, some challenging vision to persevere. And it comes. It comes in the form of a secret letter circulating amongst the churches in the area. It's from a senior church leader, no less. It seems he's had some special message from Christ himself, a message about Christ's victory over evil, a message to hard-pressed Christians to keep going. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, welcome to the book of Revelation. And we're going to carry on by reading out loud the first 11 verses of chapter 1, which you'll find on pages 1 and 2 of your workbook. I've quite deliberately had the whole text printed from a particular version. This saves you looking into Bibles, and it saves us looking at different versions. And there's something about Revelation that suggests that reading it aloud is a good thing. It conveys a certain authority. 
And so I hope you won't mind if we do that several times during this series. And we're going to start by reading verses 1 to 11. So here goes with me, please. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, some of you weren't sure of that reply. The non-Anglicans amongst you, perhaps. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yep. Okay, then. Revelation, the last book of the Bible and arguably the most difficult, certainly in the New Testament. A book that has therefore been largely ignored by many Christians down the years, and in more recent times, a book that has been dismissed even by one prominent church leader as, I quote, page after page of paranoid fantasy and malice, end of quote. A book, however, that over these five weeks together, I hope we will discover certainly is from God. A book actually full of hope and comfort and inspiration and warning, all four of those, so utterly relevant to the challenges of being a disciple of Jesus Christ anywhere in the world in any century, but not least this century. 
So let's try to answer some obvious questions about Revelation. Firstly, who wrote it? Well, the text itself tells us four times. Three times in chapter one and once in the very last chapter. Written by someone called John. Who is this John? Well, he describes himself as being, for his readers, quotes, your brother who share with you in Jesus the persecution and patient endurance. Chapter 1, verse 9. So he is not some remote author communicating from a place of safety and comfort. No, rather, he's going through the same kind of harsh experiences as his readership. He understands and, of course, that gives his message a compelling authenticity. John. The traditional view is that this is none other than the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as we read in the Gospels. The Apostle John, who has already written his Gospel, the fourth Gospel, and three short letters also in our New Testament that we call 1, 2, and 3 John. Second question then, when did this John write the book and under what particular circumstances? Well, it was probably written either at the end of the reign of the Roman Emperor Titus, so about AD 80, or during the reign of Titus's successor Domitian, who ruled from AD 81 to AD 96. Either way, it was a time of intense official persecution of the Christian church. And not just spasmodic persecution breaking out here and there, but systematic attacks. And the crunch issue in this persecution was the growing cult of emperor worship. That is, the enforced practice for every inhabitant of the Roman Empire to call Caesar Lord and to acknowledge his divinity. How? Well, usually by offering some kind of worship to a statue of the emperor, a statue erected in a temple or some other prominent public place. I have heard that the same kind of thing is currently planned for the citizens of North Korea to worship the King Um Dynasty. How up-to-date Revelation is. Now, of course, no Christian could possibly call Caesar Lord or God. That would be blasphemy. Only Jesus Christ could take that supreme honor. But if they refused to worship the emperor, the penalties could be dire. Often martyrdom, execution, and in some very unpleasant form. John himself had obviously fallen foul of the authorities, but he'd not been executed. Now an old man, he'd been exiled to the Greek island of Patmos. He told us that, didn't he, in verse 9. Patmos, it's a rather bleak, rocky outcrop, only eight miles by four miles in dimension. It's in the Aegean Sea. It's not too far from Samos, Kos, and Rhodes, just 40 miles offshore from mainland Turkey. So then, who wrote Revelation, when, <clears throat> and under what circumstances? But next, why? Why was it written, or to put that question differently, what does the book say about itself as to its purpose? I guess we hinted at this in my brief introduction. Revelation describes itself in three different ways, 
and the first is in the very first verse. Perhaps you just like to keep the text open in front of you. What do we read? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So God the Father has revealed some special truth about his son Jesus Christ. A revealed truth about Jesus, which is to be passed on via an angel to John, who in turn will pass it on to others. And it's a truth about Jesus which centers on what must soon take place. The imminent future, yes, but as I hope to show you, more than that. Supremely, Jesus' place in that future. That is to be the main focus of the challenge and encouragement for the readers. Where, in inverted commas, Jesus is in all their suffering. Just a brief comment, if I may, on the word servants there. God gave him to show his servants. I suggest that this is deliberately vague. Of course, it includes the actual congregations of the seven churches that will receive the letter. But surely there is a broader sweep here to embrace all Christians in any era. One commentator has put it this way. What John is writing in form is a letter to a group of first century believers. But in fact... It's a message to all believers. Got that? In form, yes, a message to a specific seven congregations, but in fact, a message to all. And in that context then, that interesting phrase, what must soon take place, I suggest doesn't only refer to next week or next month, soon in that limited sense. No, it also covers that which in any era could happen very suddenly, very quickly, without warning, soon in that sense, because such is the nature of persecution. Read any missionary magazine and you'll hear that it often bursts out without any warning at all. A mob suddenly takes upon itself to burn down a pastor's house or lynch the pastor's family. Sudden, soon. And the natural disasters that are to come, of which we shall read a great deal, they happen also very suddenly, soon in that sense. So given that we're dealing with a divine revelation, our first word, it's no surprise, is it, that over and over again in the text, John writes, I saw, I looked, behold. He's received nothing less than a vision, ultimately from God himself. And that, of course, gives this book an enormous, inherent, and yes, a self-proclaimed authority. Which brings us to the second way Revelation describes itself. It is a prophecy, which, like all genuine prophecy, is intended to challenge and inspire the recipients and not be trifled with. So look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. So, friends, the, the visions of these 22 chapters are not meant just to titillate our imaginations. Neither are they meant merely to satisfy the curious. 
about future timetables. They are a clarion call to repentance, to holy behavior, and courageous, faithful witness to Jesus. How relevant is that to spring 2019? Because, as we shall see, Satan not only stirs up persecution, but he also seduces believers. He just loves to lead us astray. So, a revelation about Jesus Christ, a secondly a prophecy, but there is a third aspect to this book. It is also a letter, a pastoral letter written to seven churches on the Turkish mainland, not too far away from Patmos. Seven churches, several of which were facing state persecution, like John himself. Just glance down again to verses 10 and 11, will you? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, and there they are, named geographical places. Later this evening, in the second half, we shall look briefly at what Jesus had to say to those churches and what, therefore, he might want to say to our church now. But first, back to our series of basic questions about revelation. It's a revelation, it's a prophecy, and a letter, all three. But what is the book's literary style or genre? Crucial question. And what does this, in turn, reveal about the book? Well, the book of Revelation is in the class of literature that is called apocalyptic. It's quite even hard to say, isn't it? Apocalyptic. And that is why it's such a difficult read. In the Old Testament, some of the book of Daniel is apocalyptic, chapter 7 onwards. And that's also pretty tricky. So apocalyptic, what is it? Apocalyptic writing is literature which unveils. Literature which unveils or lifts the curtain that usually hides the unseen world of spiritual reality. Got it? So it shows us what is going on behind the scenes. So in AD 90 or whenever, Clearly visible here on the world stage for all to witness is the current conflict between the church and the Roman Empire, between the church and Rome's flagrant hubris, police visits, arrests, trials, and all the rest of it. But the reality unveiled in Revelation is that this conflict is actually an expression on the public earthly stage of the invisible conflict between two foes in the heavenlies, two warring foes that are described in five different ways. Now, don't worry if you don't write this down at this time because this is one of the bits that we'll fill in later. But here, very briefly, are the five descriptions. Firstly, Christ versus Satan, also called the devil or that ancient serpent. Secondly, the lamb, Jesus, versus the dragon, or the beast. Thirdly, the holy city, Jerusalem, versus the great city, Babylon, alias Rome, and more. Fourthly, the bride, 
that is the church, versus the harlot, Babylon again, alias Rome, and more. And fifthly, those marked on the forehead with the name of Christ, that is Christians, versus those marked on the forehead with the mark of the beast, that is the ungodly and evildoers. As I say, we will come back to that. Now, it's not rocket science to realize that such teaching was highly subversive. So like all apocalyptic writing, it is written in code. As we would say today, it's encrypted. Rome is never mentioned by name. There is a heavy use of symbolic imagery, which needs to be interpreted, and frequent use of symbolic numbers, such as three and a half, seven, 12, and the legendary notorious 144,000. To put it another way, we dare not take it all literally. If we do, we get ourselves into endless trouble. One commentator has said, don't look at Revelation in the same way that you might look at a Pauline epistle or a Luke his history, the Luke or Acts. No, it's a vision. And he says to take it literally and try and kind of um, analyze it all is a bit like trying to analyze Holy Communion wine or the water of baptism. You can't do that. There's something more about this. And it may be helpful to just think of it this way. You and I use numbers in two different ways. First of all, we use them statistically. As, for instance, when we say there are 170 people here tonight. That's a use statistically, isn't it? But we also use them symbolically. One, two, dot, naught, naught. That's symbolic for midday or noon. So maybe that gives us the freedom we need to treat these numbers symbolically, not statistically. Now, this internecine, age-long struggle between the two foes in five separate guises, this struggle is portrayed throughout Revelation in a series of dramatic visions. And a key question for us, a key question for our correct understanding is this. Do these visions represent successive events in a continuous sequence. If you like, are they a neat chronological timeline, linear, by which you can forecast history and predict the future? Is that what we've got? Or are these visions overlapping circles, repeating the same message, but with a fresh emphasis each time? See the difference? Now, I don't need to tell you that down the centuries, Christians have taken very different views on this. And some have delighted in finding in Revelation a coded forecast of historical events, even towards the end, the creation of the European Union. And it's downfall. I have to say, I think they are misguided. I, I don't mean about the European Union, I won't go into that. And so I go for the first view that what we've got here is overlapping circles. Why do I take this approach? Because in each vision, Christ's final judgment and victory features, albeit described in different ways. So because the final victory is mentioned each time, the visions cannot really be a chronological sequence, can they? 
No, what we have in these visions, I suggest to you, is recapitulation. All the visions are about the time between the first coming of Christ, when the initial victory was won, and the second coming of Christ, when final victory will be conceded. So all the visions are about now and anything from the first century to the 21st. So to just illustrate that, the conflict between the lamb and the dragon, to cite one example, has already had a number of historical manifestations. Rome versus the early church. Communism versus the 20th century church. ISIS against the 21st century church. And that conflict will have more historical manifestations before the actual end. So perhaps Revelation is a bit like match of the day. You didn't expect me to say that, now did you? In the sense that it shows the contest and the winning goal several times, but filmed from different angles. Revelation, an unusual literary genre adding to its mystique. But out of all the strangeness does one clear message emerge. Yes, and it's this. God has not lost the plot. God rules, okay? And his son, Jesus Christ, not Caesar, is the ultimate victor. Despite appearances on earth, the heavenly reality, and that's the reality that matters, the heavenly reality is that Christ has triumphed and that his followers will be vindicated. And as part of that triumph and vindication, there will be the final righteous judgment that the universe cries out for morally, including the punishment of all evildoers, and especially, but not only, those responsible for the shedding of innocent blood of Christian people. In the face of all earthly evidence the other way, evil has actually been conquered and will be done away with. So keep going, Christian, says this book. Keep going, because although it may not look like it, you are actually on the winning side. And all that is good to know, isn't it? As you and I face our present very troubled and lacerated world, and in this continent of Europe, at least, a church that by and large is struggling. Not in Africa. I've just come back from Kenya where numerically the church is huge, but that's another issue. But here we are numerically in decline, at least as far as Sunday attendance is concerned. In the ancient world, it was assumed that every victory on the field of battle was won by the gods rather than by mortals, and hence the popularity of the goddess of victory or winning, who was called Nike. Hence, Nike trainers. In conscious contrast to the prevailing pagan view, Revelation insists on calling Jesus and the faithful Christian Ha Nikon, the overcomer. The overcomer. Will that be you? Will that be me? Revelation contains a number of songs or hymns that are being sung in the heavenlies, the domain of reality. If they could all be lumped together in one album, that album would be called We Shall Overcome.
just a moment of quiet before we quite quickly fill in our first worksheet. But let's just be silent for a minute. Okay, well, by way of revision, shall we do it? You'll find this on page three of your workbook. As I said earlier, please don't feel you have to if you don't want to. Yeah. Um, read the rest of the booklet or whatever, but just for the sake of revision, and if you didn't catch everything, here we go. The author is John. Three references at least say that. And he'd been exiled for his faith on the Greek island of Patmos. Some of you may have flown over it on your way to Rhodes. Date, AD 80 to 96, during the reigns of either the Emperor Titus or Domitian, D-O-M-I-T-I-A-N. Incidentally, if you've been to Split, I think it is in Croatia, there's a temple there, isn't there? Or a palace of Domitian, that's him. Purpose, A, revelation of Jesus Christ. Secondly, a prophecy. And thirdly, a pastoral letter. All three of those. Literary style or genre, apocalyptic. Do you want me to spell it for you? A-P-O-C, A-L-Y-P, T-I-C. Apocalyptic. The five warring parties... One, Christ versus Satan. Two, the lamb versus the dragon or the beast. Three, the holy city, Jerusalem. Versus the great city, Babylon or Rome. Four, the Bride of Christ, the church, versus the harlot, brackets Babylon, again. And fifthly, those marked with the name of Christ, versus those marked with the name of the beast. Key message, despite outward appearances, Jesus Christ is the overcomer or victor. In Greek, ho nikon, the overcomer or victor. And he urges his followers to overcome the temptations of compromise, yielding to emperor worship, but not only that, also heresy, immorality, and complacency. And those who overcome will reign with him. Okay. Time for a break. Jonathan, back to you. 
Andrew, thank you. I know we're not in primary school, but can I encourage you to write your name on the front? It's entirely possible that we'll get separated from our manuals and it will be easier to reunite them if we don't have to guess whose they are. Uh, thank you, everybody. Welcome back. Um, we're going to read the scriptures again. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. So that's pages 1 and 2 of your workbook. Remember, we have a certain authority as we read scripture aloud. Don't quite understand how that works, but I believe it does. Okay, verse 12, ready? Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and see, I'm alive forever and ever and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is, and what is to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that, that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good. By the way, there will be a time for questions at the end with a roving mic, so uh, be storing those up if you wish. So in our first session then, we took a broad overview of Revelation, its authorship, background, style, and basic message. And now in our second session, we're going to look at chapters 1 to 3. First, chapter 1, where we shall find a breathtaking description of our Saviour Jesus Christ. And then we will look at chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus communicates with those seven churches in Asia Minor that we briefly referred to earlier on. So first then, chapter 1, with its magnificent, full-orbed vision of Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 1 told us that what was coming was a revelation of Jesus Christ, do you remember? And that's certainly what we're offered. And revealed spectacularly for us in this revelation are three things. Jesus' titles, Jesus' ministry, and Jesus' nature or character. His titles, his ministry, and his nature or character. First of all, Jesus' titles, and there are five of them. Three of the five come all at once in chapter 1 
and verse 5. You might like to underline them, if you like, in your, in your copy. Jesus Christ, we read verse 5, who is the faithful witness, title 1, the firstborn from the dead, title 2, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, title 3. Let's take them one by one. The faithful witness. Many of you will know that the Greek word for witness is martus, from which, of course, we get the English word martyr. So Jesus, the faithful martyr. And that's significant because it tells us that Jesus does not expect any of his suffering followers to go through a trial that he himself has not experienced. They are likely to suffer martyrdom. Well, he did first. And perhaps we're reminded of those stirring words from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12 and verse 2, where it says, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. I wonder if you've ever meditated on those last three words, scorning its shame. I wonder if you and I sense that Christians these days in our country are likely more than ever to be despised, treated with scorn. After all, we are regarded, aren't we, as old-fashioned, out of touch, unscientific, intolerant, etc., etc. How do we react to that kind of press? Are we able humbly to scorn it, to set it aside as worthless, as Jesus did? And as part of that, to disregard quite a lot, but not all, of public opinion about us and the church. Some public opinion we do need to take on board, but not all. Are we prepared to scorn the shame? Jesus was faithful in that way, regardless of the personal cost, the faithful witness. Secondly, the firstborn from the dead. So if he was the firstborn, does that mean that there will be others born from the dead? Second, third, and fourth born from the dead, younger siblings in this special resurrection family. Yes. And who are those younger siblings who will follow Jesus in his resurrection path? Answer every Christian who has ever lived or will live, including us, millions and millions of us, as we shall hear again in chapter 7. I think of a former parishioner of mine, not here, somewhere else actually. I saw him on the same day that doctors had told him that he had an inoperable terminal cancer. He said to me, you know, Andrew, in a way this is a good thing because I'm so looking forward to seeing Jesus. Yes, as one born from the dead. Title three, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, I tell you, this would have made John's readers gasp because this was the very title assumed by the Roman emperors, the ruler of the kings of the earth. But who is that? Well, Titus or Domitian to judge by all outward appearances. But the reality is that Jesus is on the throne, the throne in heaven, the throne that matters. And if those three titles weren't enough, two more titles are ascribed to Jesus later in the chapter. And these two are rather special because it's the risen Jesus himself who pronounces them when he appears to John. 
Look at verses 17 and 18, up there on page 2. He placed his right hand on me and said, I am the first and the last and the living one. The first and the last. Ever thought about this? Ever meditated on it? In chapter 22, this title is repeated and expanded. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. It is a mind blowing announcement or claim about Jesus. An extraordinary concept that in some way Jesus Christ is the very pulse or life force of the entire universe and its history. We tend, don't we, to think of Jesus kind of beginning at Bethlehem on Christmas Day, but that's not the New Testament picture at all. He comes as a human then, but he goes right back into eternity from the very, very beginning. So, as St. Paul wrote to the Colossians, in him all things hold together. Amazing statement. So, you and I, if we're Christians, can never hold too high or an exalted view of Jesus. And especially when people like Greg Doran, the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, who has a certain influence in the town where I come from, when he goes public with this kind of claim about the bard, I quote, Shakespeare acts like a magnet that attracts all the iron filings of everything that is going on in the world, quotes. Well, perhaps he does, but Jesus is a bigger magnet and does it better. Jesus' five unique titles, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the first and the last, and the living one. Next, in this chapter, Jesus' unique ministry, described so movingly for us in verses 5 and 6. So back to page 1. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. Two time dimensions here. Firstly, the past. What has Jesus already achieved and achieved for us? Note the emphasis. Answer by his death, resurrection, ascension, and gift of his spirit, he has freed us, liberated us, and commissioned us. What's he liberated us from? He's liberated us from the chains of our sinful nature or the flaws of our humanity. We are now forgiven people, set on a new path, reconciled to our creator, and he has given us a whole new purpose or mission in life, namely to serve him as priests. What, all of us? Have you ever thought of yourself as a priest offering sacrifices to God? Maybe some of you say, well, I thought you clergy were the priests. Well, yes, in a way, a certain kind of priest called, trained, and set apart or ordained. But every lay Christian is also a priest. 
in the sense that he, she, we are all called to do something priestly. What is that priestly thing we're called to do? The priestly thing you and I are called to do is to stand between God and the world and to act as the link between them, as the intermediary. As someone has said, we are to be in the presence of God on behalf of the world and we're to be in the world on behalf of God. And to do that, you and I do the very priestly thing of offering our lives as a living sacrifice. And every time you and I worship and every time we intercede, use intercessory prayers, we are doing a priestly thing. So tonight, feel free to add the title reverend with a small r to your business card or CV. Jesus' ministry in the past. So what about the present? Well, our verse tells us that too. He loves us. He loved past but he still does. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But do we really believe it? Can we really believe it? Hopefully what we learn from Revelation this Lent will deepen our awareness of his love, and what better time than Lent to reconnect with Jesus' love if that's your need. So, Jesus' unique ministry, past and present. What about the future then? Well, it's there in the very next verse, verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Jesus Christ, who came to earth once as a baby, will return to earth one day as Lord and King. The second coming of Christ, a vital part of the Christian creeds, but in my experience, one of the most neglected or overlooked. When did your church last have a series of sermons on the second coming of Jesus Christ? Again, the final chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, appears to repeat and so round off the message of chapter 1. Because in chapter 22, Jesus himself says three times over, I'm coming soon. And remember that soon means suddenly, not necessarily the next day, though it might be that. And you and I are encouraged to respond, even so, amen, come Lord Jesus. We are asked to, we are to ask for, pray for, prepare for, and expect his return. So what have we got? Jesus' unique titles, five of them. Jesus' unique ministry, past, present, and future. And finally, Jesus' unique nature or character. Do you remember this story, the gospel story of the transfiguration? Those of us who are Anglicans here will have had this as our gospel reading two or three Sundays ago. The occasion when Jesus went up a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and his whole appearance changed, such that they saw him as divine whilst still recognizably human. And it's a bit like that in this chapter 1. Because sandwiched between Jesus' three titles in verse 5 and the final two titles in verses 17 and 18 is, incredibly, a description of a Jesus that is recognizably human. And I believe that is divinely inspired. Why do I say that? Because most of those five titles, wonderful as they are, could on their own 
appear to put Jesus on a totally different planet from planet Earth and all its trauma. The struggling Christians could have been forgiven for finding this exalted Jesus just too otherworldly or remote. But what John experiences and describes in verses 12 to 16 provides a balance, if I may say that reverently. As part of his vision on Patmos that Sabbath day, John hears a voice like a trumpet. He turns round to see who is speaking to him and comes face to face with Jesus. Jesus obviously magisterially divine, but also recognizably human. And look how John describes it in verses 12 and 13. When I turned, I saw someone like the Son of Man, or a Son of Man. Ever heard that before? Yes, you say, I have. It comes in the Gospels, doesn't it? And Jesus used it often to describe himself, to convey his unique identity as from God, 100%, but also 100% flesh and blood, just like us. Son of Man. Martin Luther translated it as the proper man, human in the way God had always originally intended, made in his image, made for perfect fellowship with God, made to be God's faithful vice-regent on earth, son of man. So as we examine John's portrait of Jesus here, how many human attributes, in inverted commas, or parts do we find? Try to count them and, and name them. Have a go. I'll ask you in a minute. How many are there? Human parts, unashamedly ascribed to Jesus. Verses 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. Anyone like to shout out what the number is? Ten. Okay, I made it nine, but if you've found an extra one, great, well done. Okay. Two more in Okay, thanks. Two more in verse seven. Okay. I mean, there's feet, chest, head, hair, eyes, Voice, hand, mouth, face. If you've got a tenth, great. Clothed, okay, thank you. Nine or ten in all. Nine or ten body features we all share with him, except that you and I still await the re-scheming of those features. That's the word Paul uses in Philippians for what's going to happen in our resurrection body. It's going to be re-schemed, reconfigured but it still has some continuity with our present earthly body. And our new resurrection re-schemed body is ready for service in Jesus' recreated heaven and earth, of which we shall discover more in week five. So, his unique titles, his unique ministry, and his unique nature. This is the Jesus that John encounters. But a Jesus, John tells us, who was walking amongst seven golden lampstands and holding seven stars. We get into the visionary here, don't we? What are these stars and lampstands? Well, we're told in verse 20. 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Intriguing. Have we ever thought that each of our local churches represented here has its very own angel or messenger from heaven? And have we ever thought of our local church as a lampstand, a guiding light, a beacon in the darkness? And if our church has an allotted angel or messenger, what sort of message would that messenger want to bring us in March 2019? Or to sharpen that up a bit, what message might our angel have to bring to our fellowship about our effectiveness or otherwise as a lampstand to our community? It's one very interesting diagnostic question, you know, that you can ask about your local church, and it's this. If we no longer cease to exist, what would the community miss? Ever put it that way? It's quite a challenging question. If we were to cease to exist, what, if anything, would our community or neighbourhood miss? Okay, well, it's to this kind of question and scenario that we now turn as we look quite briefly at chapters 2 and 3. Yeah, we'll read it in a minute. Each of the seven churches receives a message from Christ in the form of a letter. Where are these seven churches? Well, you could say that John is taken on a sort of cook's tour of what we now know as modern Turkey. In those days, it was the Roman province of Asia Minor. And by the sound of it, all of you have already found the map on page four. Would you like to look at that, please? The churches are taken roughly in a clockwise direction, beginning with Ephesus and working round in a circle to finish at Laodicea. Each of the seven messages or letters takes roughly the same form. Let's find out. Let's read together out loud chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Okay? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Before we go on, we just do need to explain about the Nicolaitans, okay? Who are they? Well, 
I'm afraid nobody can be quite sure. It's possible that the word Nicolaitan is a Greek form of the Hebrew Balaam. And if that's right, there's the clue. Because in the book of Numbers, Balaam was the false prophet in Israel who wanted to corrupt God's people by saying that pagan sexual laxity was okay. So for Nicolaitan, read Compromiser. Okay? So now the template. First, the risen Christ gives a description of himself, a description appropriate to the church's particular situation. So, for example, the letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2 and verse 1, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, Ephesian congregation, Jesus Christ is on patrol, so to speak, inspecting and scrutinizing the congregations that bear his name, including yours. Next, in each letter, Jesus gives a word of commendation, assuming that there is something to commend. And this is usually introduced by the reassuring and arresting phrase, I know. Do you see that there? I know. Yes, the risen Christ is all-seeing. He knows all and everything about them. And if Jesus can be positive, he will be. He will begin with that rather than with the negative. Always a good pastoral principle. So, for instance, chapter 2, verse 2, Ephesus again, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Very often in these seven letters, Jesus' commendation focuses on the church's faithfulness and endurance under persecution. In two of the seven churches, Sardis and Laodicea, sadly, Jesus finds nothing to commend. What an awful thought. So an introductory description about himself, then commendations, but then thirdly, censure or criticism where it's deserved. Chapter 2, verse 4, Ephesus again, it's typical. Yet I have this against you, you have abandoned you the love you had at first. Love for God, love for each other, or love for the community? Probably a bit of all three, because they tend to go together. Jesus loves them, but he's unafraid to point the finger. Two of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, are not criticized at all. And significantly enough, it's those two that are identified as the poorest and the most lacking in resources. You see, big and successful churches are not necessarily the ones most pleasing to the Lord. So, having pointed the finger, Jesus is then unafraid to call them to change what is wrong, to repent. Verse 5, remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And if they don't, there is often a warning of disciplinary punishment or judgment. I said, didn't I, this book has many warnings in it, not just comforts. Verse 5, second half. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Wow. 
That's an interesting thought, isn't it? A lampstand, i.e. a church, could be removed by God, taken away. And this first lamp, the Ephesus one, was indeed taken away. City and church together have vanished, leaving only magnificent ruins. Walk up and down the valleys of South Wales, and how many former Baptist chapels do you find that are now bingo halls or something else? I'm not pointing the blame at the Baptists in South Wales, but what's gone wrong? How did it happen? So, friends, there is nothing immortal or sacrosanct about any local church. Through disobedience to God, our church, your church, my church could disappear because, of course, every church is always only one generation away from extinction. You probably know that this church in the 60s nearly disappeared. But thank God that wasn't the end of the story. Commendations, criticisms, challenges, warnings, but always a positive ending to the letter. Jesus makes a conditional promise to them, and the promise is always along the lines of, I will give you such and such a blessing if, if, if you overcome. If you overcome what? Answer, your persecutors' threats if you don't worship the emperor. But also, if you overcome the various temptations to immorality, heresy, compromise, worldliness, materialism, and complacency. In other words, everything that is later in the book of Revelation described as worshipping the beast, that's what worshipping the beast is, immorality, heresy, compromise, worldliness, materialism, and complacency. Some members of the church might actually be doing that, not just the Roman persecutors. Watch this space. So verse 7 of chapter 2, to everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Seven letters to seven actual churches. But as I've hinted already, in the book of Revelation, the number seven is special and highly symbolic. It stands for completeness. Not some of the picture, but all of it. And it also stands for the real essence, rather than just a bit of the essence, or half of it. It stands for the real essence, completeness. We have an expression, don't we? We talk about sailing the seven seas. It's not a literal seven. It means to travel across all the oceans. And so it is here. These seven individual churches represent the universal church, the complete church, every church, our church. Jesus here is addressing every congregation in every generation. As I said earlier, John is writing in form a letter to a specific group of Christians, but he's writing in fact a message to all Christians and their churches. So... Before questions, and for the last few minutes, using our course worksheets, we're going to do an overview of the seven churches. For each church, you will see that I've put in, or we do put in, one theme word. This is page five of your book. A word that perhaps summarizes its strength or weakness, 
And then for each, there is a question raised which we could ask about our own churches. So here goes. Ephesus. Key word, love. Has it gone off the boil? Or compared with the past, is our congregation more on fire with love for Jesus or less? You see, this is not about activities. Ephesus was commended for its activities. There were loads of them, but somehow the fire had departed from them. Has it from our church? Love. Secondly, Smyrna, suffering. A willingness to suffer for Christ proves the genuineness of our love for him. If our church attracts no negative comment from the community and or is universally well thought of, could that be because we're not standing up firmly enough for Christian belief and ethics? Now that's the other side of the coin to our being missed by the community, isn't it? It's not either or, it's both and. Thirdly, Pergamum, truth. How concerned are we that what is taught and preached in our church, in the pulpit and more informally, is Christian truth and not just the latest religious fad or bandwagon or even heresy? Fourthly, Thyatira, holiness. Tolerance is not a virtue if it is evil that is being tolerated. I think this is a very real challenge to every single Christian church, isn't it? Somebody's put it this way, that we should say to people, we welcome you as you are, God loves you as you are, but God doesn't want you to stay as you are. That seems to be the balance between welcome and yet setting a high standard. God welcomes you as you are, but he doesn't want you to stay as you are. None of us. Sorry, God, want, God welcomes you as you are, but doesn't want you to stay as you are. Holiness. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Did I not give it? Sorry, holiness. Yes, holiness. Next, Sardis, sincerity. If we are known as a lively or thriving church, is that reputation for the right reasons? Or are we evaluating ourselves by the standards of the world? Fabulous music at that church. Yes, but is it music that's glorifying to God or drawing attention to itself? Next, Philadelphia, mission. God gives churches an open door for the message of the gospel. Have we identified the opportunities or open doors God has given us and what are we doing with them? Incidentally, we may grieve about our present nation's emphasis on austerity, but at least it's giving churches opportunities that they did not have previously to fill some of the gaps that are being, having to be abandoned by strapped cash local authorities. Think about it. And finally, Laodicea wholeheartedness, of which the essence is, comes in verse 20. You'll have to look that up yourself. God hates lukewarmness or tepidness. Has our church a tendency towards self-congratulation and complacency. What's your magazine or pew sheet like? Self-congratulatory 
or does it have a touch of humility about it sometimes? If Jesus wrote to our church today, what would he commend and what would he censure? For five minutes before we come on to questions, I'd like you, if you will, if you want to, just to discuss with your neighbor, especially if they come from the same, if you come from the same church, just discuss perhaps with your neighbor how you think one of these seven letters might apply to you, do you see? And, and, and just maybe take something forward from there. Would you do that for a few minutes? And then we'll come for questions. really need to move on because the clock ticks on. Um, I will be doing an, another session on these seven churches at the well in Leamington in September, a day's teaching in September. So if you want to know more about them, as from me, well, yeah, I'm sure you'd be very welcome at that at the well. Jonathan. Okay, questions? There's one over there. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, what I've been thinking about, what I'm moved to mention is judgmentalism. Um, I, I remember quite, maybe in the 70s and the 80s, and I, and, uh, my marriage, you know, a lot of things had happened to me. And um, I met someone, and she said, and I, I said, I, I talked about being born again, and she said, are you truly born again? I mean, you, t you don't speak in tongues. And I, I looked at her and she asked, what, what do you... But, you know, this person really believed that I couldn't possibly be born again because I, couldn't sp I never did speak in tongues. I didn't seem to want to. And I, I really, I, I still, I can feel it. I was a bit cross. Yes. <laughs> did, did you feel that was a, a, a rather judgmental approach? I, well, I thought... Well, how to narrow the love of Christ. And, you know, I'd, I'd been divorced and got two children and I knew he loved me all right. And it was just this thing, you know, oh, how can, how can you? And, yes. and, and when he used to slap you on the back, you know, fellas used to slap me on the back and said, are you saved, brother? Do you, you must have been around at that time when it was all a bit much, surely. <laughs> It was. I mean, if you don't mind, I, I don't think I want to comment specifically on the speaking in tongues thing because that is an issue on which Christians have different views and this church takes a particularly particular line on it and one that God I know honours. But I will say that I, think, I do think that there will be some surprises in heaven. I think there will be people there whom we thought, wow, what an, you know, I didn't realize you, you had a belief or a commitment. And there may be some people who are not there who outwardly show all the signs of being a Christian but actually God never really changed their heart. It's, yeah, thank you. Next. Yes. The church in Ephesus, where yes. it says, um, I have this against you, that you have lost your first love. Yes. It's always been a, a bit of a worry and a question in my mind, that if you feel you've lost your first love, how do you get it back? What a good question that is. If you've lost your first love, how do you get it back? Well, first of all, you don't stray away from God's ability to reach you, if you know what I mean. It's, it's too easy to say, well, I don't feel what I used to, therefore I'm being a hypocrite, therefore I'll leave the church. You know, If you do that, you put yourself, I think, 
unnecessarily further away from the voice of God because he actually uses the church and other fellow Christians to, to, to draw you back. Okay. Second thing I'd say is, well, talk to somebody about it. Talk to your pastor or minister or leader. They may have advice. They may have been through a similar desert period themselves and be able to help you. Okay. And thirdly, just don't give up praying. Even though you feel as if you're simply talking to the light bulbs in the ceiling, don't give up because in time, I believe God can draw you back to where the feeling returns. Every Christian goes through what we might call wilderness periods, and sometimes they're of God in order to, to hone and discipline our faith. That's one reason what Lent's all about, actually. I could, that's a much bigger answer I could give to that, but I think for now. Okay. Mm. Yes, over there. Right at the... Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I missed it, uh, but did you say anything about the word Hades in verse 18? <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, and if you didn't, could you? Please. <laughs> I, yes. Um, I, the traditional interpretation of this is that it's the place where the dead rest or remain. Um, it's not so much hell in terms of the place of ultimate destruction and judgment, it is, as I say, the kind of resting area where people believed dead people went. And Jesus says, I have authority over that place. And actually, in the letter of Peter, I think it's First Peter, there is a hint that over the weekend between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, if you see what I mean, Jesus visited that place and preached the gospel to those who died long before he first came to earth. Possibly. We don't know. Yes, it is. Yes. Other people more theological than I, Jonathan, may be able to answer that question. <laughs> but yes, I think you've got it. Yes, it is. Don't be shy, folks. That's fine. We've got four more weeks for questions, and we're <laughs> going to sing again and worship. Um, Andrew mentioned that this church nearly had its lampstand taken away uh, when Norman Warren came in 1963 to be the vicar he describes there being about 10 in the congregation and everything really struggling as the 11th vicar who was asked to come and all 10 had turned it down we thank God for him we're, we're glad he's home he's not been well and he's picking up and we thank God for him uh, I personally thank God for him and his ministry, for Andrew who followed him and taught the scriptures so well, to Bill who followed and loved people. And that one of the lessons as I observe what's been the regrowth of this church over 55 is it's just the long, slow, steady, faithful, patient, undramatic growth of a work of God. And the word of the Lord to us as a church which now looks successful is very sharp from Ephesus about our first love, not our activity. And uh, I'm interested, Andrew's going to be teaching uh, at the well on this. I've been thinking whether to preach through the seven letters to Revelation to our church, what Jesus says, and that may be something we do as well. Uh, we'll see. I may just send them all to the well when you do it. The well. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if you get someone much more theological than me, we'll do it on the... <laughs> um, we're going to worship again. I wonder if Adam is there. Look at that. Uh, we're going to sing, I think we're singing the same cornerstone, our hope is built in Jesus Christ. And it's got lines in here about when we feel weak. 
Gosh, the Christians to whom this letter came felt weak. All of us feel weak from time to time. And the thing to do is to lift our eyes to Jesus, those amazing five titles and what he's done and what he is doing and what he will do. So let's stand and we'll sing together.